Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. Hey Chris, I am just super excited about today's interview with Jessica Chiartis. Um, she is a PhD student at UC Davis studying soil and in particular, really deep carbon sequestration into soil. And she's done some just really amazing things in the natural sciences and in particular in soil and carbon capture. And she just dumps a pile of wisdom on us in this interview. <laughs> That's that's putting it lightly, Cabin. This is a great interview, by the way, and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear it. And and this is just just a fair warning. Uh, you know how they put a little e for explicit. This isn't an explicit uh, content episode by any stretch of the imagination. But I want to put like an H. Like it's heavy. It's a heavy conversation. There's a <laughs> mm. lot. I had to look up a lot of words there because there's a <laughs> lot of like. But it gets into the soil and like even just the top layers of our soil, Cabin. There's she compares of if we were as interested in uh, soil as we are in outer space. Mm. Like I think we've explored more outer space than we have on on the, just a few inches of the soil. Mm. Uh, it, it is so fascinating, and she brings that that very knowledgeable feel to it. So it gets a little technical. Uh, there's there's a hey, Cabin. I got to be honest with you. There's a lot of the metric system being used in this conversation. <laughs> Not sure I quite followed it all the way through. <laughs> what is a meter? Yeah, Chris, and you know, one thing that I love, this is a really technical conversation, but it's also kind of whimsical conversation. Jessica's able to weave the cosmos with the soil, with our human existence and kind of our existential beings, all in this really amazing conversation. So we do go deep into some pretty, pretty specifics on soil. But then we also go really big and kind of philosophical, spiritualist, whimsical, um, which I probably even enjoyed more than the technical side of it. So there's something in this for everyone. No, it's it's a it's a fantastic conversation. I love to hear your enthusiasm and how it applies because it's so applicable to your life yeah. and to your farm. And you even use your farm as a, a bit of a case study mm -hmm. near the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and she really kind of helps unpack a lot of what's going on on the the micro level yeah. of of underneath the trees there. Yeah. And it is it is so personal and it is so exciting. So this is let's just a bit of a bit of a heads up. Uh, make yourself a sandwich. Sit down. Find somewhere comfortable, or maybe listen to this over a couple sessions this is this is about an hour long yeah. maybe a little bit longer than that so just a heads up to our listeners but it's worth it it is so good so cabin i'm so glad that you got to have this conversation with jessica so with that being said let's jump right into it fill in a little bit more about who you are are you were you born and raised in davis or just for school or who where where is life led you to this place i am a california transplant i was born well. I was born in Richmond, Virginia. Spent my entire youth in Rockville, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington D.C. I did my undergraduate in business management and political science, and uh, spent about five years in corporate sales. Actually, out uh, uh, just after undergraduate, and so um, I sold everything from telecom to uh, to a brief stint in travel. Ultimately, found my way into a job selling pharmaceuticals and. You know, I was selling three different products, but the two most notable, one was an antibiotic um, used for upper respiratory infections, and one was 
a statin and, and actually a combination statin that was used for helping lower cholesterol, both preventing it from being produced in the body and preventing it from being absorbed from the diet. You know, it was around 2006 to 2008, the, there was an increasing awareness of the connection between diet and lifestyle and disease, mm. and the importance of using diet and lifestyle as part of treatment for disease. Uh, there was also increasing awareness of antibiotic resistance and the importance of following proper, you know, course of therapy uh, yeah. and proper um, diagnosis, you know, that you're not writing antibiotics for viral infections. But Right. And, and, and I'm sure your employers were just thrilled that you were coming into these awarenesses. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the irony, I guess, is or that was kind of my uh, the, the paradox, I guess, of, of that time for me was that. I was being told my job, which, you know, as someone who was very, very motivated, uh, young person, still very, very motivated person, you know, I wanted to do well at my job, but doing well at my job meant doing something that it was increasingly in, in contrast to what I was knowing to be true. And so I obviously didn't just come upon this stuff. I, I was selling to doctors and I was hearing pushback. And, and it just got me curious. And so I started digging in deeper. And I had a friend at the time who was studying biochemistry at University of Maryland. And so um, I, would, I would send him papers and he would download them and send them back to me. I don't think you're supposed to do that, but, um, <laughs> but if we were trafficking papers. Um, and, and I just, I really went down, you know, the, the proverbial, I guess, and the literal and figurative wormhole of just um, becoming really interested in microbes. I had never known before that there was such thing as good microbes. And I was kind of fascinated by that concept um, and wanting to understand more. And so as I dug deeper into things around nutrition and the environment and, and, you know, increasing awareness, I think in general for everyone around socioeconomic justice and issues um, that were taking place in, in increasingly, I, I actually, I, I left my corporate job and I decided I was going to go travel overseas and take some time and figure out what was next for me. I had some family living overseas and a partner living in China at the time. And so I, I traveled, I got to experience working on a diversity of different farms and a diversity of different contexts. It was kind of at first, just like a, a nice way to extend my traveling a place. There's a wolf, a program called Wolf where in exchange for, you know, labor on the farm, you get room and board and they usually, you know, take care of you, show you their community and their culture. And it's just, a really great experience. But as I did it more and more, I really started to fall in love with soil um, and agriculture. And the more I dug into these issues I was interested in around human health, the environment and social justice, it all just kept going back to soil. And yeah, I guess ultimately when I came back, I wanted to do something that took advantage of what I had learned in my business career and um, in, my, in my studies in undergraduate and I decided to do a PhD in soil science so that I could help be a bridge builder, really, um, you know, break down the, the barrier between science and the populace or science and yeah. industry and science and policy. I, I looked into where uh, the best programs were around agriculture and soil science and was living in California at the time and saw UC Davis. And yep. uh, here I am. <laughs> there you go. It's probably right up there. Okay, so now I've I've done just a little bit of traveling in my life as well, and so I'm immensely curious. Um, where did your travels take you, and what were maybe one or two of your favorite farms in in those travels to experience? 
So I was pretty fortunate in, in my traveling. I had, when I first left the country, I had a very good friend uh, who was getting married in New Zealand. And so I started in New Zealand and worked my way um, through Australia into uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, and then to China, spent a few months there, went to Taiwan where my sister was living at the time. Um, she was pregnant with my first nephew. And so I spent almost four months there and then went and traveled around Southeast Asia to Thailand, Laos, uh, Cambodia, and the Philippines. Um, and then came home, worked for a little while, saved up some more money, and uh, went back to Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Greece, Italy, and Turkey. Wow. And yeah, so I was, I, I definitely got to see a lot in a lot of different contexts. Um, I'd say some of my favorites were uh, when I was in Australia, there was a great little, I guess nowadays they would call it regenerative agriculture. Um, mm. I, I don't think that was a word, or at least not, not to my knowledge at the time. It was just outside of a, a really interesting little, you know, kind of hippie town. And um, they were just a very sustainable, closed loop, you know, sort of circular economy type farm in the way that they interacted on farm and with their community. And then I'd say my other real, really, um, one of my other favorite experiences, well, I guess there's two up there. I got to spend a little bit of time on a kibbutz in, in Israel, but also um, uh, my family's from Greece, and I was fortunate to stay with some extended family members that I had never met before. Uh, my father had actually never, has still never been to Greece. Um, we didn't grow up knowing much about that part of our culture, but I was able to find extended family members that I stayed with and got to work with a, a distant cousin um, on, on the goat farm and wow. do everything from milking to making Greek yogurt. And um, oh, that is so cool. <laughs> it was pretty, a pretty great experience. So then after you kind of had this amazing experience doing these two really large loops in some very cool parts of the world, that's awesome. <clears throat> you you wind up in Davis and, and you've been carrying with you this kind of awareness that there's this such a thing as good microbes and bad microbes. <laughs> and for some of my listeners, that might be the first time they've heard that delineation. As, you know, as you're walking us through kind of your experience with Davis and, and forming your PhD, like unpack for us, what what is a good microbe? <laughs> and and is it as simple as just like, you know, you paint one blue, you paint one red? Or <laughs> is it a little bit more complex than that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's probably, to be fair on reflection, it's not, it's probably not the best framing. There's actually, I think, in a lot of indigenous cultures, not a concept around good and bad. And so that that's definitely a human, uh, a human process to ascribe that to the microbes. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably similar to how we look at plants, you know, a, a good plant is the crop that we want to grow and a weed is the one we don't. And I guess that's, that's where this, this premise of good micro, bad micro, it's not the best, slightly problematic framing of just that there's microbes that are really beneficial and super important to our health. And there are microbes that cause disease, there are pathogens. Mm -hmm. And, and for most of our lives, I feel we are, we're very quickly introduced to the quote unquote bad microbes, you know, right. things that can get you sick. And we're told, yeah. um, you know, not to get dirty. And, you know, obviously it's great to wash your hands, but um, I think we're 
we're kind of programmed at a very young age to to fear dirt, to fear microbes, and and probably with good reason to some degree. I mean, there were times in history, I mean, and maybe we're experiencing one of those now, where microbes had an impact on on the population, you know, through disease. And so I think there's it's probably, you know, written into our DNA a little bit from from the trauma of those times to fear these things. But the other side of the story we don't often hear is that like we couldn't exist without microbes, you know, that they they are a very large part of us. That's a hotly contested number of like what percent of our cells really are ours or really are microbial. (laughs) And I think the point is it doesn't matter what the actual percentage is. It's like, it's a lot and they're important. And I think a better framing than good and bad microbes is probably diverse and not diverse microbiome. And I think that applies for the soil and for ourselves that, you know, the more diverse the microbiome, the more, uh, the more niches you have filled, the more functions, so to speak, that you have uh, someone who can take care of that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And then the more resilience you have, the ability to fight yeah. back against external factors that, that could be harmful. And so, yeah, I think it's more the diversity. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, that's, gosh, and isn't that just true of pretty much anything in life, right? Like when, when you monocrop anything, whether it's your friendships or your ideologies or your microbiome, it leads to some destructive outcomes that might not have been anticipated when you thought it was a good idea. And it may be okay for a while. Like you might be able to be okay in a lot of different states, but when something in the external environment changes or when your, your immune system is weakened or whatever it might be, um, you may not be as resilient. That, I think that's what people are realizing more and more. And I think you're, you're right to say this kind of is an analogy to everything of like diversity is strength, diversity is resilience. And that's whether it's soil or our microbiomes or our communities or, you know, uh, it's like it, it, whether it's economics, you know, what is what did uh, they say on the Chappelle show? You, you need to diversify your bonds. Um, so it's like having a diverse stock portfolio. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, and so I I've kind of ascribed to this thing, and and I'm I'm inviting you to tell me that I've bought a load of hocus pocus, <laughs> or or you can affirm it, and I'll feel wonderful. This idea that like our human microbiome and the ecological microbiome in our immediate environment have some interplay from like the microbes that are on our epidermis to the microbes that are in our gut to the microbes that are even in our neural pathways. Did I so? unpack that is that does that have any bearing in real science to you as you come to understand the world yeah i mean i I definitely think that um we're constantly coming in contact with you know the built environment for instance has its own signature of a microbiome uh Mm. that is distinctly different from the the natural environment although that's the human construct too to separate right it is yeah yeah Uh, (laughs) okay which by the way i'm just gonna hijack because i want to get back to that thought but like i've i've been introduced to this idea that like the way that we use the word nature and natural can be really problematic and colonialistic and i am and this constant wrestle with myself of like Okay, but what word do I use to describe? Like, so I've been using more poetic phrases like the the unordered chaos of the world around us, or like the no the 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 un the non human made environment, or like I'm just like okay, I just I need a I need a word. Can people like I agree that nature can be problematic, but can we just decide on a word that we can replace it with? <laughs> 
It's really true. I think that that actually built environment is kind of a nice, you know, it's, Mm. it's still an environment. It's part of the environment. It's just what we've built. And maybe beavers have a built environment too. (laughs) Um, And other ecosystem engineers. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there's evidence that there's an, an, an interchange between our microbiome and the microbes that we come in contact with. I mean, having a dog, um, they've Mm -hmm. shown changes in your microbiome. And they've even shown in some studies that there's a relationship between owning pets and overall immunity, you know, that is kind of like an inoculation for us, that it's bringing in microbes into the the built environment that wouldn't otherwise be there. And that that is then impacting our microbiome. I think they've had studies where they've shown uh, people's microbiome changes in a matter of uh, days after moving into a place or so, I mean, there's, there's definitely, and it stands to reason, right, that we're, we're products of our environment. Uh, we're constantly exposed to different things and breathing them in or eating them or uh, whatever yeah. it might be. And, and that's, you know, and I love that we're able to find traces of that now in the physical microbiology of our world because we've carried with us these concepts and ideas like you are what you eat or <laughs> you're, you're anchored to a place or, you know, we have all these things and, and we can intuitively and kind of poetically and philosophically make connections to the metaphysical and other things that can validate that position. But now we have chemistry and biology coming in and saying, well, now we can actually identify that in some hard sciences as well. That like you literally are what you eat and you literally are where you live. You you are you are your environment and your environment is you. That was beautiful. <laughs> Um, and it's fun to see that because then it just layers back on top of, you know, the ancient wisdom traditions that we've had for so long and many we've ignored or pushed aside or whatever else, but they've been there yeah. that have been echoing these things that now we're able to put some data to, Yeah, which is really cool. Now I should say that, um, there's the, they've actually done some studies, um, increasingly recently, um, to look at kind of comparing the soil, soil microbiome to the human microbiome. And there haven't been a lot of studies looking at, you know, a direct, the direct sort of connection. Um, but, but the diversity of the soil microbiome is it far exceeds our own. And so they've shown that the gut microbiome has about 10% of the diversity that the soil microbiome has, Wow. for instance, but wow. all that said, the presumption, um, and there's some evidence for this as well, based on indigenous tribes currently in the world is that our, the diversity of our guts has actually declined over time. Mm. And and that stands to reason also, you know, when the diversity of our diet has steadily mm. declined for the last couple of centuries, you know, it stands to reason that our gut microbiome would also decline because, you know, for instance, processed foods or things that are high in sugar are going to favor certain communities. And then those are going to thrive mm. more and they're going to outcompete other, yeah. other microbes. Yeah. Well, and not, and, and even, even in the variety we have, like we, we've so deeply tailored all of our fruits and vegetables to shelf life and transport. And so instead of having, you know, 30 different types of kiwi fruit, we now have one, yes. right? Instead of having 200 varieties of apples, we now have six yep. or, you know, and, and <clears throat> so even if we try to diversify our diet, so to speak, we're still trapped in these very refined channels that have been built for us. Yeah. And that, that's interesting to think about how that interplays in its environment with the diversity of microbes, because, you know, if you figure um, that there were hundreds of different varieties of apples, for instance, and some sort of pathogen picks up that take, you know, now we have one variety that we plant everywhere. 
it's just yeah. easier for the pathogens to evolve that can, you know, just sweep through and take out. Yeah. And that, that's one of the cornerstones in the conversation, you know, so I'm, I'm a walnut grower out here and we're small. We only have 60 acres, but we're surrounded by tens of thousands of acres of walnuts. And so people will ask me, well, what, what's in your transition to organic? What does that look like as far as sprays go? And I'm like, well, if I wasn't surrounded by 20 square miles of walnuts, it would be a lot easier. Sure. But as it is, like if we're we're so oversaturated with the monocrop that right. if something comes into my neighbor's land, I need to make sure my land's protected from it or else it's just going to sweep through. And, you know, if my neighbor sprays and I don't, they're just going to they, they don't care if there's a road between us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but again, if you know, even if we had fifty different varieties of walnuts, right? There's something else that would that would help offset that. You got into microbes, but it sounds like you didn't really stop there, or at least then you you kept making more and more connections. So, what were some of those next connections you made beyond like microbes can be really good, and we would all be dead without them. <laughs> Um, well, I think, I think that, that, that was like my initial curiosity that got me digging deeper, but I think ultimately the more I started to discover soil, I think my interests evolved because actually just to take a step back, I, I guess, yeah, um, maybe others, others can resonate with this a little bit, but during that period, I, I felt anyway, like I had been bombarded with, you know, negative news, just like all the problems and challenges of the world. In a lot of ways, we're still stuck in that loop. A lot of fear-based media, the climate's all going down, you know, and to be fair, we are doing a lot of destruction to the environment, but like just hearing, hearing that message constantly, hearing that the future was going to have all these challenges, we're not going to be able to feed enough people, you know, that, that there's going to be issues with drought and water wars, learning about issues around the consolidation of farmland, the loss of farmers, the aging population of farmers. I guess I was looking for solutions. I was looking for mm. some hope and some optimism and, you know, not just not just hearing negative news around the, you know, environmental um, challenges of the world, but increasingly um, recognizing a lot of the injustices in the world. And, and after yeah. having traveled and seen really learn, you know, really had the opportunity to understand my privilege in a totally different level. I guess I came back, I felt the world was becoming increasingly polarizing, Democrat versus Republican, mm -hmm. uh, just like organic versus conventional, you know, mm -hmm. it was just uh, increasingly like an us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, everything just kept coming back to soil for me. It was just mm -hmm. like consistent theme and uh, it's corny, but it just, for me, embodies common ground. It's like, absolutely, it's the, it's the solution that we yeah. that we need to ground us to um mm -hmm. to address challenges from the ground up i mean it's yeah really, right no so i i, I love that you're saying all of this because we it, yeah <laughs> it, it's built into our linguistics right it's built into our in, in the way that we interpret the world soil and the ground is built into our stabilizing framework yeah. that is the mental image and yet we so often go through life using the language of earth and ground and soil without <laughs> even having the image of earth and ground and soil or an awareness of what's directly under our feet yes. come into that picture. And so I, I love that you, yeah, it's so true. Okay. So, so the, so yes. Yeah, so as, as you're <laughs> facing this chaos and everything's going on, you're being grounded back in soil literally and metaphysically. Yeah. And, and so then you said, this is it, this is my life now. Yeah. I think, um, 
I, I maybe touched on this a little bit earlier, but I also, I think, was recognizing this need for, and I guess it ties into the polarization, but just this need for better communication um, about science, um, but also, you know, expanding the way we look at science, not mm-hmm. not making it all qualitative um, and empirical, but, or sorry, quantitative and empirical, but looking at qualitative things and observational things and, and giving them credence where they're due. I, I actually, I was talking with uh, with someone the other day, an amazing conservationist um, that said, you can't empirically measure love and hope, but I know it when I see it and I know it when Absolutely. I feel it. And, and to me, that's just, um, I think there was, there was a need to put a more human face to science and to there's a, there is still a need, an increasing need to to do science that's a little bit more connected to mm-hmm. human systems and how things actually um, are implemented into the real world and and um, engaging more directly, for instance, in agricultural sciences, engaging more directly with growers and technical assistance providers on the ground, making sure that that we're learning from each other and that it's a a two-way exchange process. Um, But also then that there was a need for better communication from the sciences to the general public and a a communication that there are solutions out there, that it's not all all just the challenges. So, Which I, I, I love that you did that, right? I love that you felt in your body this sense that like you, you felt the negativity becoming a monster in the room. And your response to it was to be like, well, then I'm going to suit up and do some warfare. Like I'm, we're going to, we're going to go after like your response to the negativity and the toxicity and the divisiveness of the world was like, I'm going to go find solutions. Yeah. That's so cool. And I love, and I really, man, I want it because you're, you're just, you're hitting on all my high notes, which I love so much. It's great because I'm so convinced that so much of intelligence can't be quantified, right? It can only be qualified and it's been being qualified for thousands of years, right? In the last 500 years, we've done a really effective job of calling it non-intelligence because it's not quantitative. It's only qualitative, like from oral histories to everything else, like there's so much intelligence and wisdom in those systems that we're beginning to learn how to reintegrate. You are teaching all of us <laughs> how to reintegrate that, right? Because you're you're the one you you are the one doing it from inside the sciences and and other people like you, which I love. So and and I love that you went to soil as social discord was unfolding. You went to soil as as political unrest was un folding you went to soil so soil even though you're deeply rooted in the physical sciences soil transcends a mere test tube of minerals and microbes for you yeah because from the biophysical perspective it's key to our ability to produce food fiber and fuels right to be able to provide the raw materials for for much of our economy you know i kind of left out timber although i I mentioned fuel but just to say like you know so much of what we depend upon is grown in soil and there's a real biophys there's a real need to understand the biophysical nature of it and providing solutions for growers um, and the ability to continue to sustainably produce crops that are not only just little stacks of calories, but that are nutrient dense and that can nourish people. All that said, it's also, you know, our physical foundation, which, you know, all of our infrastructure is built upon. It's a building medium that has a lot of benefits um, that people are starting to seek out more again. It is, I, I think, the sense of place that unites people, you know, place a place to gather in natural parks or gardens, you know, we all, it all takes place on the physical foundation under our feet. And, and I think also just to get a little bit, yeah, more deep into 
to the woo-woo side of things, <laughs> you know, um, we're literally, you know, I guess Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to say that we're made of stardust, but um, mm. we're also made of soil. Uh, we're made we of are. stardust filtered through soil. And so, you know, as rocks weathered down for millions mm. and millions of years into smaller and smaller pieces, and and we, we developed these things called clays that had a charge, they could hold water, they could hold nutrients. And, you know, who knows sort of what all transpired at the intersection of air, water and mineral that eventually like, boom, we had, we had life, whatever your origin story may be. But, um, and many of them do reference, reference earth or soil or God Mm -hmm. grabbed a handful of clay and breathed life into it. But something happened. And, and then all of a sudden with biology on the scene, this process just speeds up and everything that, you know, obviously air and water are brought together to make a plant that then makes an animal or, and, you know, ultimately humans, but there's, you know, somewhere between 17 and 23 minerals that only come from the soil that are needed to build our bodies and make us exist all of the connective stuff you know that hold the the carbon's holding it all together but like the calcium and phosphorus in our bones and our teeth the iron in our blood there it comes from nowhere else than soil and so we're we're literally made of soil and as the ashes to ashes dust to dust we go back so um there's a there's a soil scientist out of I'm going to get this wrong, Minnesota, who says we're all just temporarily not soil, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And dependence upon it. So, right. Because soil, soil is the, well, the, the earth is the eternal element. And as far as our human existence can go, we, we can't think of anything more eternal than the earth itself because it, it preexisted human life and it will exist after human life ceases. If, if there's any spiritual construct that has an understanding of eternity, it somehow has to reference the earth for human minds to comprehend it. And so I love that's so beautiful that we are only temporarily not soil. That's, that's awesome. But I think the original person is someone named Francis Hull and I probably should be giving credit to where it's due. But um, I think that, you know, all of that said, uh, all of these like sort of broader philosophical views that I have or connections that I feel to soil, I just, I don't know how many other people have experienced this, but it just feels good to be in the garden with your hands in the dirt. It's, you know, and especially taking something from seed to, you know, a fresh cucumber or tomato or what have you. And there's very few people you can find who will be unhappy, who will not enjoy that experience. And, you know, I've seen programs where they work, they use gardening for everything from like providing vocational skills for people when they get out of prison and reducing recidivism to like care for elderly people to keep them engaged and to keep their mind and their bodies fresh. Um, We've seen veteran programs that have been really incredibly successful at healing People, mm-hmm. um, you know, not not saying that there isn't more to healing trauma and things like that, but there's all these examples of, you know, getting people into nature, getting people into a garden, and yeah. improving all sorts of human uh, qual- quality of life outcomes. <laughs> the, the the earth is a healer, and again, we've known that for thousands of years, and we've ignored it. Yeah, that's yeah. the earth is a healer, absolutely. And I, I mean, I experienced that in in my own life you know, here on the farm, it's yeah, so much healing, 
just in, in the environment. And it ties to my understanding, how I relate to time and the time burden I carry and how I relate to, you know, the social structure around me, how I feel about my own competence and, and, and capacity as a human being to produce. And there's just so many, I mean, we could spend an hour on 20 different topics that all relate to the ways that the earth facilitates a pathway into healing for the human psyche, human body, human experience. Speaking of things you can't necessarily quantify. <laughs> right? And and yet and yet we know it because we've been able to bear witness to it for thousands of years. So so you didn't stop there though. You you kept going because wh- where I first heard of you was talking about carbon, which to get from microbes to carbon, we go through the soil food web. And so take us on that journey. And let's let's start talking a little bit about carbon sequestration, maybe some of the the pop mythology around it, but then also what you're discovering in in your research about the effects of that top six inch of microbial diversity and then the impacts on carbon multi-feet into the soil. Those are all great questions. Yeah, again, I think one looking for solutions um, and, you know, wanting to engage kind of in the sciences and better understand soils in a deeper way. I had pursued a PhD at UC Davis. And, you know, to be totally candid, uh, carbon sequestration was something that I learned about in my process of, of studying soils and, and kind of digging and doing my own sort of like being an armchair soil scientist at that, at that stage. But it wasn't necessarily what I thought I was going to do research on. I think, you know, back to earlier in the conversation, I was, I was really keen to try to find this smoking gun between the soil microbiome and the human microbiome. And I think that there, you know, I hope one day that that is um, that that is in, that is researched more. Um, but I think it's it's probably a pretty expensive uh, research project. It's very challenging, also when you're involving humans in a study, and it was definitely very outside my wheelhouse. So. Um, I think, I think once you arrive in grad school and you kind of realize to be totally candid, like the harsh truth or harsh reality of like, I need funding to support me and for sure, where's the project, you know? Uh, And I was just very lucky because I think for some people, you know, it's a project that it's interesting, but maybe it doesn't have huge broader implications. And, um, and so, you know, obviously for anyone doing a PhD or even a, a master's, it's, it's, there's always going to be hard times, but if you can kind of like see those broader implications and the bigger picture of why your research matters, you kind of, it can keep you going. So I was fortunate that I was put onto a project that really did have huge broader implications. And that was looking at the long-term impacts of the agriculture um, in the Sacramento Valley on soil carbon. And uniquely, they had taken soil cores down to two meters in 1993 and also in 2012. And so when I arrived in 2014, the samples were already collected. Um, you know, the experiment had been managed for a couple of decades at that point. I just kind of walked into all of that and had this amazing data set to work with to look at the impacts of a conventionally managed corn tomato system versus conventionally managed with a cover crop versus an organic system, which had a cover crop and composted poultry manure. There was also a series of wheat fallow systems that were either irrigated or not, fertilized or not, and one with a cover crop, but we didn't really see a lot going on there. And that hmm. I, that feeds into some of my later findings around soil carbon. Yeah. Basically, you know, when, when looking into the literature and what had been done historically in the past, you quickly find that the average sampling depth is about 25 or 30 centimeters. Um, and so I kind of took a framing uh, in my research of like, what if we had just looked at 
30 centimeters versus mm. when we looked at the whole two meter profile. And if you had just looked at the surface 30 centimeters in these corn tomato systems, the conventional system would have you know, stayed about the same. It didn't change very much. The conventional system with the cover crop uh, appeared to increase a little bit in the surface and the cover crop plus composted poultry manure also increased in the surface, but quite a bit more, um, significantly more. So I think it was about like uh, seven megagrams of carbon per hectare in the surface um, under the organic system. But when you look at the whole two meter profile, um, which, you know, if we're talking about climate change mitigation, we're talking about greenhouse gas equivalents and drawing down carbon, keeping it out Mm -hmm. of the atmosphere, you have to think about the whole three-dimensional profile because, yeah. you know, um, that's what a soil is. It's a three-dimensional body. And, and so if you want to know the carbon footprint of a given acre, you have to consider the depth. And when we did that, nothing really changed with the conventional system. Uh, the conventional plus cover crop system, uh, although not significant, uh, there were trends of decreases at depth. And there was so much of a decrease at depth that, it actually offset the increase in the surface. So that wow. system was actually like misestimated completely. We thought it was a, a sink and it was a source of greenhouse mm. gas. And the organic system uh, with the composted poultry manure and the cover crop actually uh, increased three times what we had measured in the surface. So instead of seven megagrams of carbon per hectare, it was 21.8 megagrams Whoa. of carbon per hectare. Yeah, I think Obviously, there's a there's a nice like analogy there to just the importance of digging deeper. And, you know, this this extends to a lot of things. We just look at the surface, you know, we Mm. don't dig in deeply enough and we don't investigate enough to fully understand the system. And, you know, we maybe look at one part of a system uh, in one period of time, one Mm. fraction segmented piece of it, which nothing exists in that way, right? Everything's right. connected. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I think those are the big takeaways for me were one, you know, uh, it's really important to consider depth, but but also um, I got to have a little bit of experience with the variability of carbon and um, have done some follow-up work looking at soil carbon down to a meter. I've been fortunate to work with several organizations developing monitoring protocols in California or um, sampling for brands that are interested and kind of tracking their impact of, of their ag systems. And wow. increasingly, I just see how variable it is. And um, wow. it's this interesting um, juxtaposition of like this amazing potential, you know, to draw down carbon, this this ancient technology of plants that photosynthesis fixes CO2 out of the atmosphere, puts it into plant biomass, you know, whether it's the living matter that eventually dies and goes into the soil, or whether it's things that are, you know, pumped out through their roots, feeding microbes. And like you said, the whole food web, just using, using this, and it's, it's poetic too, using this like natural technology, you know, not to, not to use natural again, but to help tackle a challenge that we currently have. Uh, the challenge is that how do we measure it? You know, if, if we want to award it and we want to avoid greenwashing and we want to make sure mm-hmm. that we're not investing a bunch of money in something that's not actually mitigating greenhouse gases, um, we have to be able to measure it or at least have certainty around the practices we're implementing. And that's where I think a lot of people are stuck right now, you know, and and a lot of academics, especially, they feel very reluctant to support or even engage around carbon sequestration and carbon markets because, 
they feel like the science isn't there yet. And, mm. um, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'm going on a bit here, but I think just to wrap this point up is like, as, as excited as I was, and as much as I had the carbon exuberance early on around, you know, this could be a solution for climate change. And this really, you know, this really is promising. I think you also have to ground yourself a little bit in, in the reality of, of the fact that we don't know for sure about the total amount of carbon we can sequester through these practices. Mm. But what we do know with a bit more certainty is they're not going to have a negative impact. You know, they're, <laughs> they're going to have a positive impact, um, even if you don't sequester carbon, if you, even if you're just maintaining carbon, that's a positive mm. thing. And I think if we can start to shift our perspective beyond carbon and climate change mitigation to ecosystem services and yeah climate change adaptation and resilience, I think we can get a lot more people on board and thinking about creative ways that we can improve our agricultural management to yeah. improve the ecosystem outcomes of agriculture. Yeah. But right now we're, we're creating this polarization again, actually. Mm. It's starting to happen in the carbon market space of like people who say we could measure it for sure, you know, just trust us. Yeah. And then right. people who say we can't measure it at all. Let's throw our hands up and not do anything. And yeah. I think there's a middle path in between that's like, mm. we don't know everything, but we know enough to take action. And mm. even if we don't sequester all the carbon, we'll keep our soil in place. And erosion may arguably be as much an existential crisis as, as climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I want to hear about your adaptive ideas. And I want to use my farm as a case study, if, if you'll let me. Sure. Um, but I want to ask a couple questions before we get there. So you were drawn into soil through microbes as a way to ground yourself and some hope in, in the face of some disparaging news. Do you still feel hope in that field? Or do you feel like maybe as we come to understand it, it's not quite as much of a golden elixir as we had hoped it would be? I still... I still feel hope. I think my perspectives have expanded. Um, mm. You know, I think I, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think, I think a big thing is maybe bridging the rural urban divide just in general. Yeah. I think it's agriculture. I think it's reconnecting to, na to, to, to nature and to the environment mm -hmm. around us, um, realizing that we are a part of it, um, not apart from it. I think, you know, there are solutions that science can provide around soils. And I think there are there's an incredible influx of questions that people are now thinking about and asking and exploring and some really interesting research that's happening. And we are kind of at, at a breakthrough, you know, soil is kind of this final frontier right here on earth where we understand maybe one to five percent of the microbes in there and as we learn yeah. to understand them more i think we learn to understand ourselves and our environment more um so i think there's still a lot there for just the exploring the the continuing to understand i mean if we could get elon musk to be as interested in the soil here as the soil on mars <laughs> we could be in really good shape but i think that my perspective is probably broadened a little bit and i'm more interested in food and agricultural systems as a whole and how we can start to bring together people in urban and rural communities to have yeah. dialogue and understand each other and understand their different needs and to get people to you know not everyone needs to be a farmer you don't even have to want to be a gardener you know yeah. but we all need to be supporting our farmers and we all need to have reverence for our farmers as the last great stewards of the land and we need them right now you know um, not just to make sure we have a secure food supply in the future but that we have a healthy ecosystem 
you know, and, and, you know, we didn't go down this, this wormhole yet, but, you know, just thinking about disease and, and the spread of zoonotic diseases and the importance of habitat in these Mm -hmm. corridors that separate, you know, wild, wildlife from, from human uh, Mm -hmm. communities. And as we start to reduce those barriers, that exchange happens more frequently. And we're just, Mm -hmm. again, leaving ourselves more exposed, um, yeah. literally and figuratively. And so, yeah, I think I still, I still have a lot of hope. I actually maybe in some ways have more hope because I just, I've had the privilege over the last five years to work with some of the most passionate people that I've ever met who, who really believe that if we can support our farmers and if we can regenerate our agricultural systems and, and reconnect people to food and land and each other, that we can solve a lot of the problems we face. And yeah. I think when you have that many passionate, intelligent, caring, considerate people working on something with intention, you can't stop it. So. Who, who could stop that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to circle back to one more thing about the core samples, because I think it might not be obvious as how counterintuitive this is that you went down to two meters and one yeah. meter. But the reason why most samples are only taken to 25 or 30 centimeters, that's the root bearing zone for most vegetables and grasses, right? Most brassicas, grasses, broadleafs, other things. They only put, you know, you might get a root down 50 centimeters, maybe 80 centimeters on, on a really deep bearing root system. So you're going down 200 centimeters. And and the conventional thinking was, well, if the roots aren't physically in contact with the soil, there can't be any exchange happening. Sure. But what you're finding actually is that up to, you know, four or five times the depth of the root zone, you're finding an impact of the roots on that entire material structure. Maybe the roots. I mean, there are definitely some plants that that have deeper roots. And, you know, if people are cover cropping, you know, especially mm-hmm. depending on the mixes, they may be getting deeper roots down there. But we also have to consider irrigation and even just precipitation in a in, you know, we don't have we don't have that issue here in California because <laughs> unfortunately reach down that far. But in areas where they get rain, you know, that water moves again, soils are three-dimensional bodies, they're subject to gravity just like you and I, and things move mm. down. Yeah, there's a movement of carbon-based materials with that. Now, what happens once it's down there is, you know, it can go a lot of directions. Microbes can can eat it up. And if they do that inefficiently, um, that can contribute to more CO2 and loss of native or old mm. organic matter. Mm-hmm. Or microbes can can consume it efficiently and put it into their biomass, store it, and become the future organic matter. So mm-hmm. this kind of recent shift in thinking about soil carbon uh, in soils is that everything goes through a microbial filter. You know, the plants are the vessel that brings the carbon into the system. But once it comes out of the plant, whether it's through the roots or the residues, it's uh, it's cycled through microbes, broken down, built into, you know, catabolism, anabolism built into uh, microbial cells that maybe bind up on a clay, form a biofilm like the plaque on your teeth. Mm -hmm. And when they die, they turn over and they kind of stabilize on that. Or you get what's called aggregation where clays and, you know, positively charged nutrients called cations and organic molecules all kind of compound upon each other and aggregate into a physical structure that protects that carbon uh, for a long period of time. So there's a lot of different kind of fates, so to speak, of carbon yeah. once it comes into the soil. And we're just starting to understand what makes it stick around or not. But what I think is a really interesting way of thinking about it, as I mentioned, is this efficiency idea that it's mm. it's not just how much carbon you put into the system, but it's how efficient the microbes are at converting that carbon to their biomass mm. uh, 
versus respiring it as CO2. And so when you think about the physiology of the microbes, the structure of the environment they live in, these things are all going to influence how efficient they are. Wow. Uh, and so if we improve soil health, so to speak, yeah. if we kind of think of that as improving the diversity and the physiology of the microbes and, and other organisms mm -hmm. for soil life, then then yeah, we we really could be improving this ability to store carbon uh, wow. in as well. And and I think, you know, you, you mentioned earlier talking about farm systems as creating these little stacks of calories instead of nutrient-dense food. And and it's it's so true because those Two things are very different things, right? A stack of calories versus nutrient-dense food. And I'm wondering, even as you're talking now, if <laughs> if we're if we're talking about carbon a little bit like the way we talked about calories in the 70s and 80s, and that we're going to come to a place, um, hopefully sooner than 40 years from now, where we say, oh, yeah, calories are one factor, carbon is one factor, but this nutrient-dense food or this microbial-dense food web in our soil is actually the thing we're going after um, and that we've been maybe a little too hyper focused on just one element of that and has and our focus on it has actually created detriments in in the wider system because you know my let, let's transition to talking about my farm a little bit as a case study you know my farm has i'm, I'm the first yeah, thing with you about the the carbon nutrient comparison there really yeah. quickly before yeah. I, that thread i mean it's actually interesting because it it builds completely on this efficiency idea I was just mentioning. And there are studies that have now shown that if a mic, if microbes are deficient in certain nutrients, they won't be able to convert that carbon as, mm. as efficiently into biomass. Mm. They'll either not have the other nutrients they need, the other building blocks, or they'll have to go into old organic matter to find it. Right. Um, or, and which requires them doing work, you know, mm -hmm. motility to move around, producing enzymes, things like that. And so on the flip side, there, if we're adding a diverse array of nutrients into the system that can overcome deficiencies, you know, uh, the, the ratio of carbon to nitrogen to phosphorus to sulfur is kind of the most important because those are the major building blocks of microbial cells. But even things like calcium and magnesium and things that are important for coenzymes um, and just some of their general functionality. It's important that we have not just carbon in our own diets, but also in our, and you know, what we're feeding the soil. And, and that we create a diversity of what's in the soil to eat whatever's there, that there can be more yeah. pass off and trade, you know, it might be hard for one colony of, of microbes to, you know, sequester some sulfur from some inorganic matter, but it's easier for some, for another colony. And so then they, they do all the mining and then they excrete something, you know, that, that this other colony needs and was looking for in that mineral to begin with. And yeah. And so then there becomes all that resilience of interchange between all those yeah. microbes. Very okay. Cool. Okay. Okay. Study. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about my farm a little bit because, so I'm, I'm the fourth generation of my family. My great grandfather bought this land at the end of world war two and it's been conventionally managed, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. As I'm here now taking over in my third year, allowing my dad to retire, I'm stepping into it. I'm coming to the land a little bit differently because I left for 18 years, got my engineering degree, traveled overseas, did a bunch of other stuff too came back to the farm. And so I'm looking at the system and I'm saying, okay, this land was productive and fertile for a thousand generations before my family got here. And I want it to be fertile and productive for a thousand generations after my family leaves. So what do I need to do to participate in that cycle of the universe and the turning of the earth? So one of the things I'm, I'm trying to create, and I, I'm so hesitant to use the word regenerative 
or organic or sustainable because it just feels pop. It feels too catchy and, and it doesn't quite, it's hard to understand the heart of it. So the, the, what I've landed on recently is like ecologically interdependent, ecologically diverse. Um, I, I call myself a soil first farmer now to people. Um, when people ask what, what I farm, I'll seriously, but also jokingly, I'll, t- I'll tell them I, I farm soil and solar. That's what I farm. I capture yeah. energy from the sun and I capture nutrients from the soil. That's it. That's all I farm. The trees do the rest. Um, and I just happen to sell what the trees produce, but, but I'm, I'm a soil farmer first, um, or, yeah. or a soil first farmer. That's yeah. how I think about myself. So one of the things we've done is we've started planting cover crops, right? So we've, we've done nine way cover crop. And I actually, this year I did a mowing in March and then another mowing just last week in the middle of May. So I got two deposits of biomass from the same nine-way cover crop. Um, and we've got about 250 chickens that we moved through the orchard and mobile tractors to provide that tilling, that interchange there between the ant, the floor and the fauna, capture their nitrogen through their waste and other things and integrate that into the soil. My brother-in-law is a chemist down in Sacramento. So he was I was talking to him about why I'm doing this. Well, I'm doing it for soil health. That was my answer to him. I want to keep living roots in the in the topsoil. I want to retain more moisture because we have really silty soil. So for us, the problem isn't that soil can't that water can't penetrate our soil. It's that it penetrates too quickly and descends too quickly to be useful for a long term for our roots. And and he, you know, as a chemist, he was like, mm, I don't know if that's really an effective way to create an environment of nutrition for your trees. And I said, well, that, that's why I'm doing it for the next 20 years, right? I'm, I'm doing it for the rest of my life as long as I'm here. Um, I should add the other thing we do is we apply compost tea through our irrigation system a couple times a year for that sure. microbial deposit, right? So, so from your perspective, right, you're thinking about a land that's been managed with heavy synthetics for the last 35 years. Um, you know, kind of the scorched earth method of kill everything except the thing you're trying to monetize. Now moving into what we could broadly categorized as regenerative or more organic based practices how how do you respond to that do you say oh yeah you're you know you're not going to see anything for for 15 years then you might see something or are you gonna be like stuff's probably already happening that you can't see how how do you relate to that as people are in that space your microbial communities have already changed you know I love that. <laughs> multiple times since i mean there's some that are going to be sort of like native you know that that stuck around through the various types of management and and are still kind of going strong but um microbes change with changing ph with uh you know changing moisture content they're constantly changing throughout the course of a day throughout the mm. course of the season throughout wow. the proximity from a root, like these communities are so dynamic. And so um, when you think about, you know, even just changing the quantity or quality of organic inputs, you know, Mm. not organic certified management, but carbon-based inputs that you're putting into into your system, those communities are going to start to shift um, Mm. based on that. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, there is a good analog there, I think, to our guts too, you know, that We've seen through studies that when people change their diet or, you know, when they eat more fibrous foods, for instance, versus less fibrous foods, these things change on fairly quick order. Now, that, that's not to say that things are, are just like, you know, you, you change things for a little while and the microbial community changes and just stays that way, you know, forever. If you go back to managing right. um, how you were doing before, you know, things are going to probably even more quickly shift back, you know, right. because there, there, there's kind of that, I guess, uh, that signature is already there, you know, mm-hmm. and, and 
if you don't change the environment enough, because that's the big thing, you know, even with these compost teas or microbial inoculums, there, there may be some that work really well in, in terms of shifting the microbial community. But in, in general, what we know about that is, you know, if you don't change the environment, then you're, you can add as many different microbes and different inoculums as you want. They're, they're not going to last very long. Some so, of these, they call bugs in a jug. They end up dead on arrival, so to speak. Yeah. But for the ones where, you know, maybe they're, they're still kicking and live and doing their thing, you apply them to this completely different environment than they were raised in. And there's this whole microbial community that already exists there. Hmm. And they're, they're like, who are you? And they're going <laughs> to you know, defend them. And not many of the ones you added are going to stick around. Yeah. But with enough consistency over time, communities will start to shift. But, and, but yeah, I think, I think that's a direct analog to us as well. You know, yeah. uh, what, 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 sorry, I'm, I lost my thread there a little bit. But just, yeah, if you, if you have someone in a certain situation and you remove them from that situation, you might see improvements if the environment changes. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't change the environment, um, mm. things are going to revert back pretty quickly, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so true. Yeah, that's so, just... So, so what, what does it look like for a farmer to change their environment? You know, because <laughs> this goes back to what you were talking about earlier about some of those alternative management practices, which, goodness, I'm just like, tell me all the things... Um, and, and that interplay between the urban and, and rural and, and all those things. Had, so yeah, how, how does a walnut farmer where I, I plant trees for 50 years, right? How do I change the environment? Is, is there something shy of like tear it all down <laughs> and start over? Is, is there something in between don't change anything and burn it all down that, that can be an effective change in the environment? Yeah, I just, I think that's such a great parallel. I guess for a farmer, you'd think of it two ways. On, on the one hand, if they want to and change their, so microbiome, increased soil carbon, this and that, they have to change the soil environment. And that means building structure, you know, by building aggregation, by adding carbon inputs, by reducing disturbance, keeping the ground covered, roots in the ground more, you start to build these aggregates that basically form the hallways and the walkways of your soil where water and air can flow through, where microbes can move around, hmm. uh, where nutrients are exchanged. And, you know, rather than a compact, you know, nothing can can move through this. Um, and so I think on one hand, changing the environment is like literally changing the structure of your soil and creating an environment that's conducive to biological life and biological psyche cycling of nutrients. The flip side uh, of that or the parallel to the kind of human scale is like for a farmer to change their environment, that means a lot of other stakeholders changing as well. Mm. So that means policy changing to subsidize practices that will allow them to improve the sustainability of their land rather than either either leave it fallow or you know not for instance some some programs in the past have not incentive have disincentivized cover cropping you know mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a change in the recent farm bill that will allow you know you to cover crop without being at risk of losing your crop insurance but yes. things like those sorts of policy things need to change uh, the consumer needs to value that that the grower isn't only providing them a product Product of like food or fiber that that you know maybe gets processed into something they buy in the supermarket or something they buy at the farmers market, but also these ecosystem services they're providing that yeah. they are stewarding the water cycle, the nutrient cycle, mm -hmm. the biodiversity, and and if we want growers to 
be good stewards of that, then we need to value it and compensate them for the time and effort that it takes. I think markets need to shift. You know, they also need to support and understand that the the profit margin for a grower needs to make sense for them to be able to do these things. And if the if the purchaser wants to be able to market effectively to their consumer that they're supporting regenerative practices and environmental outcomes, then then um, they need to incentivize that in their supply chains. And so I think I think there's a lot of things and this maybe circles back to that urban rural divide of like, if we can better understand each other and, and learn to appreciate all of the things that rural communities provide us with, then maybe we can start to value those things. We can start to support them with our dollars and actually create the change that we want to see in the world. Yeah. You know? Getting get, get back to your dog Buddha there. <laughs> or I guess it was Gandhi, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I think, and, and I mean, it obviously goes beyond that too. And you probably have experience with this growing up in a multi-generational farming family, you know, there's cultural practices, yeah. there are things that are passed down. And so there does need to also be an openness for the grower to, to kind of acknowledge that they've done what's been asked of them for a long time. And they've continued to produce like a reliable, affordable uh, food supply for us, right. but we just didn't know what we really wanted. And now that we, now that we see, we yeah. we like to support them in doing something different and, and that these aren't, you know, crazy cuckoo things. These are things that their grandparents were probably doing before that. My, my, my great grandfather started out here with, with mules and horses, right? He didn't start with a tractor, right? So there was natural deposits of organic matter into the soil, right? That just yeah. happened as course. Yeah, that's, you know, it's fun. I've I've got a a, a beautiful group of people on Instagram who follow our journey. And, you know, and and there's one aspect for me in the shift to this ecologically diverse farming that's really selfish and selfishly motivated. And that's, you know, there's two things that I am looking for in my farm, right? It's ecological inputs and economic outputs, right? That's it. And, and we spend so much time focused on the economic outputs that we tend to ignore the ecologic inputs, but they're equally, if not more important. And for me, it gets a little bit selfish to the degree that like, look, if I want my walnuts to be packed full of minerals, right, that we can't, we can't synthesize out of sunlight and, and atmosphere, right? There's thing, like you said, there's these things that only come out of the earth. If that's not in my soil to begin with, it's not going to be in my walnuts when I put them on market. It doesn't matter what the USDA nutrition label says. It has like good soil and good sun make good fruit. I can't control the sun. I can just capture it. So now I'm looking at the soil because that's if I want a healthy, nutritious product that's nutrient dense and beneficial to my consumer who's supporting my farm selfishly, right? Let's not, well, let's not even talk about the ethical or moral imperatives of the future and how we steward the environment, but just like this, and this is how I'm relating to farmers in my area who might be challenged by these concepts of, well, you know, what, what am I doing for five generations from now? I got to make sure I keep food on the table now. Well, this is actually a very selfish way to keep food on your table, right? Get nutrients back in your food. Well, the way you do that is like you said, you change the physical structure of the soil. I'm waiting for that day where I can send that physical change right because we we mow we shred in all of our prunings we mow in all of our harvest so we're doing everything we can to keep as much organic matter from our orchard on our orchard and then all the compost tea slowly shifting i'm just so excited for that day where i'm like oh it's different now where just the ground beneath your feet feels different yeah already there's one block that we have 
that now when I walk out there, my feet sink a little bit. Yeah. Not not in a soggy way, but just like I can feel that it's like, oh, this is lofty soil. And I, I can reach down now and just without – I can just grab a handful of yeah. soil um, without any – oh, it's it's beautiful. I can't wait for this to be my whole orchard. <laughs> it's it's going to be good. You're going to get there. And, um, you know, I think I think you asked me before about, you know, how long uh, these changes start mm-hmm. to take place. And I think I, I kind of focus on the microbes will be different very soon. I mean, structural things can take more time, you know, building up a pool of carbon to a, to a level that's measurable, you know, is can take time. Um, it depends on the soil, but it can be 10 years, 20 years yeah. upwards. But at the same time, um, you know, I think some of the returns start trickling in, you know, slowly over that time. And as much as, as I agree, it's like there, there should be a selfish imperative. You know, we, we get taught, we get taught that just to think about doing things for the self in a selfish way, we don't ever get kind of taught about doing things for the self in a self-care sort of way. Um, But I think, you know, being concerned about the economic outcomes is self-care. That's, it's not Mm -hmm. selfish. It's making sure that you can put food on the table for your family, that you can keep farming year after year. But I think that there's an increasing shift away from focusing on just yield in terms of the economics, Mm -hmm. thinking about profit. And Mm -hmm. If you can reduce your input costs, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and consistently over time as you're transitioning and implementing new practices like these, then you can you can increase your bottom line, you yeah. know. And so I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity there as we're slowly shifting things yeah. to provide a bit of cushion. All that said, the marketplace still needs to to support as well because there is yeah. real risk, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and and our solution was to go direct to consumer on on social media, and it's. Cool. And that's that's how we've been able to stay afloat this year, which has been just a huge gift and, and we don't take it for granted. But yeah, it's interesting having conversation with other farmers in the area who, you know, I I'm I'm the weird farmer around here, you know, because I'm like what what is what, gotta have one. <laughs> right? Like what what are you spraying through your irrigation? Oh, it's a bunch of dead microbes that are gonna take over. Oh, hmm, interesting. Okay, you're a weirdo. Um but it's but I, I it's good nutrients. <laughs> Even if the microbes don't stick around, it, you're spraying on a diverse array of nutrients. It is. And that, it that's is. really valuable in an available form. So. Yeah, so available. Oh, man. Get, building When I start pulling up little roots and there's all these rhizosphere colonies stuck to those root clusters and we start getting those. Oh, oh man, it's great. I love it. But, but I'll, I'll relate <laughs> it to them and I'll say, well, it's like how we know that eating a salad is better than eating French fries. But when you eat a salad one night, you don't expect to get on the scale the next morning and see a change, right? You have to commit to it year after year. But whereas the body cycle is on like a 24 or maybe a 96 hour cycle, the soil cycles on a one year to five year, like it's a multi. So putting on cover crop for one year is like having one salad one night. No, you got to commit to it over the long term if you want to see the benefits. Because we, again, even if we can't measure it, even if we can't quantify it, we qualitatively understand that a healthier diet makes a healthier body. A healthier diet for the soil makes a healthier soil environment for good things to grow. Yeah, and, and you can take that a step further further to like a more diverse or a healthier landscape grows a healthier food system. You know, if we diversify our landscapes, we can better diversify our plates. 
which will better diversify our soil microbiomes and you know the the virtuous loop. Um, it is, and it, and it reintegrates the rural urban divide, right? Because as as the rural environment is diversifying the soil, intrinsically, then the plates of those urban dwellers are also diversified yeah. in a positive way. I have one one last thing because you mentioned soil and sun, <laughs> and I think we talked a little bit about language before, and just I find it really interesting the root the root word or the etymology of soil is. Uh, uh, from the Latin word solemn, solemn. Um, which has soul at the at the root, S-O-L, right? Interesting idea that soil is kind of this, this storage of solar energy. And so when mm. we think about the organic co- compounds that build up, I mean, what is the difference between mineral matter and, you know, or, you know, dead inert rock and, mm. and living soil? It's the organic portion of it. You know, we say soil is the, it's, it includes four parts. It's mineral, air, water, and organic. And mm. so that's kind of that differentiating factor. Um, it's interesting to think about the fact that these are compounds that are just storing solar energy. You know, we talked about mm-hmm. calories before. It's all just like forms of solar energy that have been stored maybe in the bonds of between elements, you know? And so just to think of that connection between soil and sun, mm-hmm. that that is really kind of the differentiating factor that gives life gives rise to earth to ah that gives rise to life on earth (laughs) literally gives rise to life on earth absolutely and i love that because as you were talking you know i was just letting my existential self flow out and be like oh man the bonds of energy that store everything and and this root word of of soil being solemn and then i'm like well then that's like the soul like the human soul not just the sun soul right because then also the word human comes from hummus which is also earth and earthiness And, and again, it gets back to that ancient wisdom. Like we seem to have understood a very, very long time ago that we are inseparable from both the sun and the soil, that it makes us intrinsically human. It doesn't compete for our survivability, but it defines what it means to be human. And so I love that idea that like our, our actual tagline for our, our business, our business name is tenderly rooted. And there's a whole image associated with that. That's really cool. But, but the tagline is soil or this cultivate soil, soul, and city like that. That's what we're about. Like we want to do that and integrate in an integrated way. And then, you know, around our logo, it says good sun, good soil, good fruit. Then that's like our, our secondary. I, I am so convinced that in the etymology lies the wisdom that yeah. to be human is to be earthy to be soil is to be full of sunlight and and stars stardust right we we're talking about and all of those things together make a human soul um i in fact i did a whole episode on the podcast where i was like i don't think a human soul actually lives inside of our body like many of us sure. from religious traditions were taught like i think there's a part of our soul that occupies a dimension we don't see and a part of our soul occupies the soil under our feet and then there's a part that oh, lives within us you want to go a step further let's go um, so the soul but also the soles of our feet mm. you know why are they called souls um yeah. you know there's obviously this new craze around grounding and yes there's actually been some research out of nih that looks at this transfer of of ions from the soil into our bodies but you know i mean we 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 weren't born with shoes i, yeah. I jokingly call them foot prisons you know because <laughs> it's like we're locking them up in these things when they really were born and made to be on the ground. Mm. And whether you believe in grounding or not, it again, it just feels good to stand barefoot on the ground or on the sand or or something like that. And and if you think about that, that if it's true that there is a sort of energy exchange Mm -hmm. 
and like you said, that the soul maybe exists in these, these places that extend outside of our bodies. It's interesting to think about the connection of the soul and energy and the energy of the earth and the soles of our feet Absolutely. and how the change Absolutely. is taking place. Yeah. yeah. And then bringing the metaphysical energy of the universe and the interplay of all of that. And like, yes, like, yes, there's this connection between what we tend to think is this very disembodied kind of ener cosmic energy and this very like embodied earthy rootiness um, that yeah. that are very, very deeply and intrinsically connected beyond what we can see. But the battle of the earth and the wings, you know, and yes. And it's, it is, it's interesting to think about, you know, they, Leonardo da Vinci said, we know more about the celestial bodies than the soil underfoot. And it is interesting how we're so fascinated with space and space travel and mm. just to kind of, uh, you know, not to make a plug, but I, I was fortunate during grad school to receive some funding through the USDA NRCS to build a website um, called Soil Life to mm. educate on the connection between soil and life. And provide graphics-based education on soil science. Um, we actually have a website that'll be coming out and, and we're also on Instagram. So, it, it, but, so uh, it's called Soil Life and on Instagram it's at Soil Life? It's at Soil.Life. At yes. Soil.Life, okay. So yeah, when, when we created this project, um, we very quickly established our mission as uh, to inspire the next generation of soil explorers for the benefit of all. And it's a direct bite off of the 1950s NASA campaign to build the next generation of space explorers for the benefit of all. Mm. And at that time, when there was so much interest in understanding outer space, there was such an investment in that science. We got a man to the moon, you yeah. know? And so imagine if we created that sort of moonshot around soils today mm. and, and recognize that just like we looked up to the heavens before in the past and, and many do still today, just like now we kind of worship uh, this, mm. the extraterrestrial outer space sort of, sorry, I shouldn't say extraterrestrial, just the, the cosmic sort of uh, dimension of outer space. It's all, you know, they say heaven is on earth, right? Mm. And, and that's the thing we've kind of maybe missed is that it's right here when we're out there looking for other planets in space, what are we looking for? We're looking for soil and water. And the only known planet that has yeah. those things yeah. is right here. Right. So, right. Um, yes. so that's kind of, I think, where we're at. I think we need to start looking at soil as being, like I said, for the final, the true final frontier and, mm. and start, you know, exploring and better understanding what we have right beneath our feet before we start messing around in someone else's sandbox. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you're here and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group, Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage with us on Instagram at ofdust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything.
Live the questions now. 